This recording has been prepared by Aravis Capital Limited, hereafter referred to as Aravis, for entertainment and information purposes only, and is intended solely for professional investors and not retail clients. The information, statements, comments, views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as investment advice, an offer to buy or sell any securities, or an endorsement to make or consider any investment or course of action. You should consult a professional before making any investment decisions. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. Investments can go down as well as up. Aravis does not express any opinion as to the present or future value or price of any instruments referred to in this recording, and the information provided is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. Aravis does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of the information. Any expressions of opinions reflect the view of the speakers and are not necessarily those of Aravis, and are subject to change without notice. This recording is the property of Aravis and is not to be reproduced in whole or in part without prior written consent. Hello and welcome to Aravis Presents. My name is Hugo Rogers, a member of the distribution team here at Aravis Capital. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Stephen Luck. Stephen is the CEO and partner at Fountain Cap Research and Investment, where he helps run the business on a daily basis. Fountain Cap is a single strategy, boutique, long-only equities manager based in Hong Kong that takes a valuation-focused approach to companies benefiting from China's continued transformation. Stephen, a very warm welcome to the podcast and a very warm welcome back to London. Hmm. You've been on halfway through a kind of mega road trip seeing clients and it's nine weeks total on the road. You're now halfway through that and were last on the ground from what I gather in 2019. How sentiment changed towards China from, from allocators? And you've seen a, a variety of clients. So I'm interested to see if that's changed and, and how that differs between the client types. Yeah, uh, for, first of all, Hugo, great seeing you in person. Uh, 30 months being locked in Hong Kong is, is something else. Uh, but this is really good to be able to be on the road again and travel and see everybody. Um, and th- throughout that four or five weeks that we've, we've been on the road now, a lot of things have also changed, uh, you know, in China. You know, and definitely part of that is sentiment shift. Uh, you know, we started the road show in Singapore, and we have seen how investors there were a lot more cautious uh, towards China. And and then we went to the Middle East, to the uh, to the UAE region, uh, and that was around the time when uh, Alibaba also reported its earnings. Which, by the way, as a barometer of sentiment towards China and, and consumption in general, I think is fantastic uh, you know, as an indicator. Uh, then we start to see sort of this more opportunistic uh, uh, demand coming out of the allocators in that region. Then coming to Europe over the past uh, uh, few weeks, definitely you see allocators wanting to deploy. Uh, I think they also have the capital to deploy. Uh, really, it comes down to the question of when to do it. That uh, they have all the same type of questions: where does China go from here? You know, how does zero COVID policy uh, going to play out? And and has China really slowed down uh, as much as the media has portrayed? And what's the impact of that to uh, to companies? Um, so that we even in that four or five weeks time that we've been on the road, definitely seen sentiment. Shift, but I think shifting towards uh, more positive, uh, more constructive towards China. Fantastic. Um, and and now, kind of moving slightly broader, uh, you know, you 
moved to the US when you were nine, grew mm. up in the US, you, you've spent time and worked in you know investment banks and investing more broadly in the US. You're, you're at Goldman in, in New York. Correct. Uh, and you've obviously done, you know, you were founder cap in, in Hong Kong now. Yep. What do you think Western investors get wrong when they're thinking about investing in China or looking at China? Mm. Um, not necessarily wrong, perhaps, is that's the incorrect word, but, but what are their assumptions that are, are incorrect, you feel? I, I think the number one thing uh, is, is more of a misunderstanding uh, of how to, of what China really is. I think because China is, is the second largest economy in the world now, uh, it has grown rapidly over the past 30 years, uh, dominating uh, news around the world outside of reportings of, you know, of the US, for example. Uh, uh, people tend to just see China also as a developed country, uh, and, you know, basically already on par with other nations. Uh, and and I, I can understand that. Uh, but then on the other hand, from a portfolio management perspective and from the allocators that we speak with, China is always lumped under EM. And I think that's really where a lot of that disconnect comes from. You know, they expect China to behave like a developed market, yet at the same time, uh, they also group China under the EM bucket. Uh, uh, so so I, I think that is probably one of the number one sort of misunderstanding um, that I have seen. And, and that because because of that too, it, it sets expectations wrongly also. You know, at the end of the day, China is still a developing nation. Uh, and uh, as any developing nation, it comes with Certain risk, uh, risk that you should be you should be uh, aware of uh, when investing in a in a place like 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 that. So, uh, I, I would say that's probably the number one misconception uh, or misunderstanding, if you will. That's great, and and I think again, this is a slight extension of that question. It's I wanted to ask about kind of you know we've spoken about this before. A good someone who is seen as a good China watcher. Hmm. Um, it, you know, almost part of that is admitting that you don't really know what's going on, even if you are seen as as a good China watcher. There is that kind of perhaps lack of transparency. Um, we know macro is you know important. You guys do a lot of bottom up work, but also macro also plays into to the investment thesis for any investment, um, particularly on a, on a looking at specific sectors. How do you kind of manage that balance between the two? Taking the, that fundamental view, looking at individual stocks, mm-hmm. but also trying to take into account the kind of volatile macro factors that, that play out in China. Yeah, I, I think the key there is that fundamental investing in China, uh, I think, works a little bit differently than fundamental investing in the West. Mm. Uh, when the word fundamental is used in the West, I do think that's a lot more pertaining to idiosyncratic issues relating to the company itself. In China, you have that, definitely, uh, but at the same time, you also need to take into consideration some of the macro issues, some of the more regulatory-driven uh, issues, and really understanding sort of how the government may be thinking about uh, 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 certain things as well. Uh, and, and, and that you expect, you know, just like any EM market, uh, macro will always be one of the bigger factors uh, driving uh, equity prices and, and, uh, and market movements. Uh, than purely fundamentals uh, of the company. Now, 
that's not to say focusing on fundamentals don't work in China. I mean, that's what we do uh, and does work, especially if we have a longer term view, because doing great volatility, times of volatility, that's when you can then bet more into your uh, higher conviction names that you do have a very strong fundamental uh, view on. So um, from our perspective, uh, uh, that, that's the fine balance, you know, how you integrate essentially the understanding on the macro picture on, on uh, what the government is doing into your fundamental analysis of a company uh, uh, and translating that into a longer term horizon such that you can continue to, to hold on to it and, and essentially invest into it uh, over time. Very interesting. And, and continuing that research theme, Fountacap, one of your, your main kind of specialties is doing these kind of deep dives, in-person research trips out to various provinces and, and regions in China, you know, really focusing on tier three, four, five cities, speaking to management, employees, customers, trying to get a, a really strong gauge on the quality of the company you're looking at. Could you provide some background on, on that approach, how it came about, mm. and whether you think that will continue to be uh, a benefit versus peers in the industry? Yes, uh, and that's the context around this uh, is that we you can really look at China, uh, in our opinion, as one country. In, in some ways, I, I joke, I mean, I'm in Europe now, uh, that uh, it's very much like the Eurozone, you know, and China has all these provinces and each province is a country of its own, uh, in, in a way. It has its own demographics, culture, even language uh, at times yeah. are very different. Uh, different level of economic development and you layered on top of this uh, a tiered cities, uh, city systems you know you have definitely the tier ones that everybody focus upon uh, the shanghai the beijing uh, uh, that gets reported quite often but then you go down the scale then you have tier two tier three tier four tier five tier six and the countryside uh, that complexity uh, very much requires sort of this on-the-ground presence, sort of this, uh, in, in some ways, getting hands dirty, you know, to go go into the weeds uh, to figure out what really is taking place, what really is happening. Uh, this approach uh, is very much driven also by uh, our founder of the company, uh, Frank Ding. And prior to uh, his 30-plus years uh, in investment, he actually started out as an economic researcher within the Beijing government. Uh, and and during that time, that's essentially what he did uh, to get a to get firsthand information as to what really is driving China forward. Um, and we translate that to how we do research today, to taking into consideration some of these complexities uh, that that we are seeing. And this approach, in my opinion, allow us to essentially identify trends a little bit early on, get ahead of the curve uh, or, or the market. At the same time build conviction levels and names that may uh, uh, may seem you know questionable at times, um, but that's how we can be contrarian because we do see what really is happening on the ground. Uh, and at the same time, allow us to have that conviction needed to hold for three to five years, uh, which is our typical uh, holding period on, on names. And and to touch again on, on, on the cities and, the, and the, the tier system, can you give us a sense of how big let's say a tier two, three, four city years, because yeah. I think it's another area where a lot oh, yeah. of Western investors fall down is really misunderstanding 
or, or not appreciating just the, the, the actual scale of the market in China? Yes. Uh, and, and interestingly, I think uh, media also tends to focus on just that one yeah. part, you know, like the Shanghai, the Beijing, the Shenzhen. Uh, uh, and, and to put that into context, I mean, that yes, that is what I think the West and perhaps much of the uh, 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 China also wants to aspire, aspire to become. You know, they're a lot more modernized, developed, um, uh, 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 in some ways uh, also internationalized. Uh, but that's only a, a relatively small part of China. Uh, sort of put that into context. There are 1.4 billion people living in China. Uh, 300 million of those live in tier one and two cities. Mm. But the remaining 1.1 billion people, these are in the lower tier cities. 1.1 billion people. I mean, that that to me is really where the bulk of China is. Um, that's really where the complexities come in. But at the same time, that's really where all the opportunities are also. Um, and, you know, for a on-the-ground specialist uh, like us, uh, that, that that is what we want to access uh, 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 in the companies uh, and, and investing uh, for opportunities. Absolutely. And and linked to that, China has long been a bit of a demographics play. Um, but but we look at the situation now and, and the kind of population pyramid has, has inverted, certainly over the last kind of five, 10 years and mm-hmm. will continue to do so. You know, it's, I think it ranks 159th in the world for population growth at the moment. Uh, how are you thinking about these changes? Because we know that, you know, the consumption trend is very big for founder cap. It's very big for the broader China growth story. Uh, what does the, the, the consumer look like going forward? Is that changed from the last 10 years or will that change moving forward? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, as China continues to develop, uh, that translates into how people also consume. And you have definitely seen sort of this consumption upgrade uh, throughout all of China, uh, perhaps played out even more prominently in those tier one cities that we just talked about. Um, there was a period of time uh, where luxury branded goods uh, were flying off the shelves uh, in, in, uh, in those uh, tier one cities. Uh, now, uh, I think that period of time may have peaked. Uh, more consumers are focusing on quality, on value. They're a lot more savvy in how they go about shopping uh, uh, for things that they need. And, and same thing, you know, you look at some of the lower tier cities as well. You know, the population there uh, have a different, they, they, their lifestyle is quite different. You know, they live a more leisurely lifestyle. They don't have sort of that mortgage payment, for example, uh, that, that's on top of their mind. Um, they tend to uh, want to enjoy life more than sort of focusing on making the, the millions and millions of dollars uh, that may be type of mentality in, in for, for the people that live in uh, the, the, the tier one cities. That is also shifting and driving how they will consume uh, different services and products. Um, another interesting trend that's developing, now, of course, the aging population, you know, sort of that reverse pyramid that you talk, uh, talked about, yeah. uh, that is taking place already. Uh, and that will also continue to drive mm-hmm. some of the uh, sectors that focus in servicing uh, some of the elderly population. Um, but another trend that I do think may have not been somewhat overlooked, um, but it's also equally interesting, is sort of this growing delay in getting married uh, uh, in China. So people essentially 
getting married later and later. Yeah. Uh, perhaps even just staying single for the rest of their life. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think the estimated marriage rates uh, at the end of 2021 uh, was half of what, what that was uh, 10 years ago. Wow. So you basically have this population that is staying single longer. Uh, and if you're single, you the way that you spend is also very different from how you would spend if you're married. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that will also continue to drive uh, consumption behavior change uh, in China. Um, but taking a step back, you know, t- at a high level, that consumption trend, sort of this bigger need for people needing to, uh, you know, increase the, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, essentially upgrade their lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, continue to spend uh, to, you know, for a general improvement, uh, is very much intact. You know, irrespective of everything that uh, you know we have read in the media so far, you know, with the either be it the lockdown or the economic slowing growth, yes, they have an impact. Uh, but I do think those impacts are rather short term. Uh, the longer term trend is still very much intact, and and a lot of these demographics change that that I just mentioned uh, and which you alluded to uh, will continue to be the drivers for that. Great. And and shifting gears slightly, I wanted to touch on China's push on renewable energy, uh, the kind of green energy space more broadly. You know, making a strong effort on on climate change seems to be possibly one of the only areas where the US and China are really putting in the same direction now. Fountacap are are current investors within the space, within energy material sector. Uh, Where do you think the kind of big winners come from in that market, how do you think the transition plays out? Because the plans are very ambitious from the government. Do you think those are uh, achievable? And, and and again, how are you guys thinking about that 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 huge change uh, to consumption based? Yes, I I uh, I do think it is achievable. Uh, you know, if if there's any one thing that can be said about the uh, uh, the government in China is that if they put their mind to do to, in doing something, they're gonna get it done. Uh, I mean, that's sort of the I guess the advantage of having the one-party system, uh, if you will. Uh, so I do think it's achievable, and with that, that just means there will be a tremendous amount of resources being poured uh, into that space, uh, either be it from domestic resource or even foreign investment. Uh, but here, then, uh, uh, while we are exposed to this, I, I think it's also important to navigate through perhaps some of the pitfalls, um, you know, especially. You know, we tend to like uh, companies that are not generating growth through subsidies. Uh, many of the downstream players uh, within sort of the renewable space mm-hmm. rely, are relying on subsidies, and that's something that we, we want to avoid. Uh, instead, we're focusing on some of the more upstream players, some of the more uh, niche component makers, for example, uh, within sort of this renewable space, which we find a lot more interesting. Uh, they have a much stronger market positioning. Uh, and harder to replace uh, than some of the more commoditized um, uh, 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 businesses uh, on the downstream. But this is a big sector, uh, and I think it's only at the cusp of something, uh, or, or rather, I, I think th- this is a big sector, uh, and it is only uh, at, at its very early innings uh, mm-hmm. in how much room it can continue to run. Uh, uh, and, and like you said, this is one of those areas where uh, China is getting uh, 
uh, uh, a lot of buy-ins um, from uh, internal uh, businesses as well as uh, uh, foreign investors and really hitting those targets uh, that they've set for themselves. Very interesting. Uh, now, I don't want to, to, to leave my final question as being too pessimistic, but I, but I think it's important we probably cover it is that for the last you know, 20, 30 years, uh, longer even, China has been the kind of de facto growth economy or growth story within within Asia, mm-hmm. um, or certainly within you know Southeast Asia region, East Asian region. Uh, I mean that looks slightly to be changing. You know GDP is obviously slowed. It's, you know the the goals aren't certainly as ambitious from the government in in that respect, and we're seeing some of its neighbours in you know in Southeast Asia. You know their demographics are very favourable. They've got young. Educated populations and GDP growth is accelerating quite rapidly. Is that something do you think investors should should worry about investing in China, or is that simply a natural evolution of an economy that was that was built on you know on a mass manufacturing base? Uh, I I don't think it's something that investors should worry about. Uh, and and frankly, sort of this uh, discussion around how some of the peripheral or, or Southeast Asian countries. Uh, uh, are growing very rapidly, and, and, and this sort of frontier markets, if you will, have been in play for quite some time too. Uh, so it's not like it is happening just today. I mean, for the past decade, sort of this is something that's been focused upon. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you're inv- looking at China, I mean, chi- uh, sorry, looking at Asia, uh, China is still the dominant country that is driving much of that growth in that region. As a matter of fact, China still is the biggest contributor to global growth. Uh, so from, from that angle, I, I uh, sort of this shift um, that is taking place, I, I don't think investors need to worry too much about. Uh, and as China continue to develop too, you know, it's very similar to, uh, to the West. Uh, and the West also gone through this period mm-hmm. of industrialization yeah. to get to where they are today. Uh, you know, they didn't become a consumer driven or consumption driven economy overnight and it took, it took time uh, and, and I think that's exactly what China is transitioning towards uh, and through doing this transition uh, I, there, are, there are still many opportunities to be had that, that uh, it, it even if let's say there is a bit of a shift uh, especially the more recent talk about onshoring and having the supply chain moving out of China uh, even if that's the case I think the impact would be quite limited um, you will likely find that an equilibrium will be reached uh, quite rather quickly. Uh, it's simply because many of these other countries just don't have that infrastructure, doesn't have that labor force. Uh, so costs will very quickly rise. And yeah. at some point, it may not make business sense anymore, like good business sense anymore to, to do that. Um, uh, so I, 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 I do think uh, the long-term play here is still very much China. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. Lots of fantastic insights there and uh, the best of luck with the rest of your road trip. Thank you, Hugo. Such a pleasure and and, uh, uh, anytime.